How can leaders manage disruption when disruption never stops coming? What are the best practices for those struggling with the pace of change? My guest today says that our future depends on changing the way we change. It's happening now on Boss Better Now. You're listening to Boss Better Now. This show is sponsored by Joe Mullen Associates. Now here's your host, speaker and author, Joe Mall. Hello again, Boss Heroes, and welcome back to your weekly dose of advice, humor, and encouragement for bosses everywhere. As always, thank you for sharing a small slice of your week with me here on the show that aspires to be food for your boss soul. Now, if you've been listening for a while, you may have noticed that our recent episodes have featured a lot of guests, and that has been an intentional choice. As you know, I speak and write about commitment in the workplace, and over the years, this has led to me meeting some brilliant, funny, innovative, inspiring people. And as the audience and the profile of this show has grown in its second year, I decided that I wanted to connect you, our Boss Hero listeners, to some of these incredible people, and especially to some of their gifts and their expertise and their personalities. And my guest today is one of those people. I met him in sort of the most casual way possible. We were both attending a conference, and we ended up sitting next to each other at dinner one night at one of those group meals that gets pulled together by one person who knows everybody, despite the fact that none of the people there knows each other. And so we, we end up sitting next to each other, and when I found out about his background, we quickly got to chatting about the upcoming election, and we've kept in touch ever since. He is a big thinker who makes me think every single time I get the chance to chat with him, which is why I'm so excited to introduce you to Caleb Gardner. For more than three years, Caleb was the lead digital strategist for OFA, Barack Obama's political advocacy group. He led one of the largest digital programs in existence, including the most followed Twitter account in the world, at Barack Obama. I cannot wait to ask him about that. But his decades of experience don't just include work in government and politics. He has built operational frameworks for a variety of organizations in both the public and private sectors. Now, as the co-founder and managing partner of 18 Coffees, great name, an innovation and consulting firm, Caleb helps businesses with a mission to change the world, get a foothold in the future, solve impossible problems, and bring new ideas to life. He works with global clients, including United Way Worldwide, Bose Corporation, Comcast, and others. And he's also appeared in a variety of media, including Forbes, NBC News, Entrepreneur, Entrepreneur Magazine, among others. And he has a brand new book, which I'm really excited to talk with him about. It's called No Point B, Rules for Leading Change in the New Hyperconnected, Radically Conscious Economy. And that book is going to be released on August 9th. And so I am so excited to welcome to our show my colleague, Caleb Gardner. Welcome to Boss Better Now, Caleb. Thank you so much for having me. This is exciting. Do you remember that meal where we met? It was at the Influence Convention, and it was in the summer of 2016. I do. Oh, I was just smiling when you were saying that because it was such a such a pleasant memory. It feels like it wasn't that long ago, but when you say it's 2016, oh, man. I was doing the math on that. I thought, wait, was that before the— the, the Trump-Biden election? No, that was like back in the, the Clinton-Trump election, because I remember we were talking about HRC, and it's not a surprise to anybody listening that my politics are decidedly blue, and we had that in common, and we talked about that quite a lot that night. And it's just been fun to see uh, 
the direction that you have gone and the work that you're doing and the agency that you're running now, a lot's changed for you since then. Is that fair to say? Very fair, yeah. I mean, there's a reason why that feels like a lifetime ago. Yeah, absolutely. Well, well, let's start with that first sentence in your bio. You were at Barack Obama on Twitter. What is it like to manage that account and to talk to millions of people every day? Stressful. I mean, <laughs> I'd like to say that, you know, I wasn't as gray when I started that job as, as I am now, much like the president himself. Right. Um, you know, we was one and on the one hand, you can't say that it wasn't an amazing experience. And, you know, one of the most meaningful things I've ever done, um, just getting to work with the people that I got to work with. I mean, the, the people who it, it dedicate their time and their careers and their, their volunteer efforts, whatever, you know, degree, to making the government work better mm. so that it serves people so that it you know people who uh, want to do government for all the right reasons get elected whatever degree of um you know public service that ends up being are just the most inspiring people mm. um they're most fun to work with can put up with all kinds of crap when it comes to Ugh. like the actual workplace right like the right. the squalor that a lot of government <laughs> employees end up working in is is insane. Um, but they're always so inspiring. I mean, these are people that if you talk to them day to day, they come off as completely cynical and 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 dry <laughs> and hilarious. But actually, they've dedicated their careers to this big, inspiring vision of making the world better. And so it was just just an amazing experience from that point of view, not to mention getting to work on, you know, the launch of the Affordable Care Act, the Paris Climate Accords, you know, and all the policy actual things that we got to work on and help launch. Yeah, when I think about how I got frustrated earlier today because my Bluetooth keyboard wasn't connecting to the computer in the right way. And it's one of those things where you're like, this is ruining my whole day. And then you remember there are people <laughs> out there who are doing much more important things like that. It sort of puts it into perspective. And you're right. The folks that I've met who are in public service, it could be a really thankless experience, but they have this sort of internal, deep commitment to purpose and to, to serving the common good in a way that you don't find in a lot of other places. And so I guess that, right. that, that sort of tees up my next question. Question. So much of our discourse around many topics is standoffish and even toxic, right? Both at a national level and for many folks in their day-to-day -day lives, right? We've all learned that there are some conversations we can't get into at work or that, or even with certain family members. So as someone who ran one of the largest digital programs in existence, what do you think we have to do to encourage more civilized communication? It's it's funny to think about how much communication has changed, even from when I was, you know, working in w with the Obama organization. I mean, there was still an optimism inherent to things like social media. I think up until 2016, there was we had the Arab Spring in what was it, yeah. 2014. We we had just positive movement in terms of empowering people, giving people a voice, putting being people being able to organize and, uh, you know, make change both in their local community and on more national and international levels. It wasn't until 2015, 2016, and going into the Trump administration, where we really started to see the downsides of connecting people without guardrails of online bullying behavior, we started to see um, data coming out about the mental health issues inherent in um, things like Instagram and other social platforms. Mm -hmm. So we really started to lose some of our naivete. And I say this personally, I started to lose some of my naivete mm -hmm. 
about um, the impact of the internet at large, but especially social media platforms right around that time, and started to really kind of swing the other direction in terms of advocating for more regulation, mm. um, both from a government regulation, but also internal regulation of those companies themselves more media literacy and digital media literacy, especially when it came to us as individuals and understanding where we're getting our information from, who we're being influenced by. All of those things, unfortunately, we haven't made a lot of progress on since that time. I mean, there's been some friction that's been created on things like Twitter, for example, when you go to share an article, it knows you haven't clicked through and read. It will say things right. like, are you sure you want to share this? <laughs> like, so things like that, you know, maybe we've made read that the second of, paragraph, Joe, that's right. before you share it. Yeah. More than just the headline. <laughs> um, so, you know, we've added some friction, you know, obviously there's been some regulatory pressure on things like Facebook around its advertising platform, but they really haven't done much with their organic, um, platform, which is where a lot of the problems arise. So there's still a systemic problem that we absolutely need to address. I think we as a society, especially in American society, are becoming a lot more sober about the positive versus the negative Mm -hmm. effects of the internet. The tech industry has lost a lot of its halo effect. Um, So we are, we are, you know, reconciling that a little bit for ourselves. I think that ultimately, it, it has to come from a three-pronged solution. Like it's going to have to come from you and I learning about uh, the internet, how we consume information, being more uh, tech and media literate. It's going to have to come from government regulatory pressure, and it's going to have to come from internal change in those companies, you know, employee pressure, especially um, wanting to do the right thing. And, you know, really trying to figure out a lot of these tech and ethics issues are not easy. It's not easy to do moderation at scale, for example. And so there's there's a lot of effort that has right. to go into doing that well and, and really thinking through some of those thorny ethical issues. So when you solve that, Joe, you just, you yeah. just let me know because I'm going to be over here, you know, doing other work. I'll text you and we'll we'll celebrate <laughs> together. Sure. Uh, and and sort of the through line, I think, that that I pick up on both in terms of the big systemic uh, issues that we see, and then the day-to-day issues that exist in our personal lives, they both come back to the degree to which our thinking can be so easily manipulated, not just mm-hmm. by misinformation, but by the absence of information, right? And when I so when I talk to a lot of managers and do a lot of training with frontline leaders, more often than at any other time in my career, I do get this question of, you know, my team gets along, except we have these political divides in our office, mm. and we can't talk about these kinds of things. And so much of what people sort of gravitate toward and decide that they believe is based on the limited exposure that they have to a certain sort of tailored amount of information. And so as someone who has worked in politics for a while and now in business for a while, I imagine you've had to develop some really diplomatic ways to challenge people to open their minds to thinking differently or uh, that they might not know all that there is to know on the subject or that what they do know might be misinformed. Can you guide us in any way toward some diplomatic ways of challenging folks when we know that they are maybe being victimized by some of that manipulation? Yeah, I I touch on this a little bit in the book for that exact reason that you're talking about, Joe, which is that the outside world is seeping into our workplaces Mm. much more so than we realize. And I think this is especially true in a remote work environment because we are all we've individualized work to the extent where 
you know, my Slack is right next to my Twitter. I mean, I'm getting yeah. messages like about work at the same time as I'm getting messages about what's going on in the world. And so that culture outside of our workplace is really starting to seep in in ways I think we don't even realize. And so I, I do address this a little bit in the book. One thing that I, I want to call out is there's this uh, practice called calling in instead of calling out that I think mm. is a really important one. Um, it comes from obviously the the idea of call out culture, which has right. been critiqued a lot. And, and, you know, to some extent, I think some of those critiques are valid. I think some of them tend to be used as scapegoats. But I think if you think about how do you actually change minds, a lot of that naming and shaming is good from a macro level in terms of how society changes, but it's not actually great from an right. individual changing, you know, people's minds. And so the idea of calling in is we actually invite someone into deeper understanding of an issue. Mm -hmm. We personalize it for our own experience. And then we actually make room for that person to, to, for their mind to actually change. And we see people on a journey of understanding instead of, you know, as a zero and one, you're either with me or you're against me on this particular issue. And so it requires a lot of patience. Yeah, it does require a lot of um, understanding the cultural and political nuances of the language we use when we mm -hmm. use specific words, explaining why we're using those words, for example, um, requires a ton of patience and just kind of trading on relational equity we have with individual people. Mm -hmm. um, we can't make people's minds change if we haven't done the work of creating some kind of bond and, and shared trust with those people. So tr it, being able to trade on that when we're asking people to do really deep work of learning and changing is really important. It's why we can't change a stranger's mind, but we can have some influence over ways that uh, our friends and loved ones think, because the distance that we have in those relationships is much shorter. And when we have those bonds of right. trust and familiarity and even camaraderie, we actually have some more of that relational capital that you've talked about. That's why we do I a mean, camaraderie question of the week on our show every week, because we want leaders to understand it's not just about accomplishing the tasks and getting things done and, and maximizing the productivity of your team. You have to build underlying sophisticated relationships if you really want to maximize the performance and the productivity. I'm sorry, but go it's, ahead. It's context specific, right? Like there's certain people we have historical relationships with where it actually makes it harder for us to hear them and understand yes. them. So like family members is a great example. Like yes. if I go and try to try to convince, you know, my cousins of, you know, my progressive point of view, they all, they're all very conservative and they live where mm -hmm. I grew up in Oklahoma and we are, you know, night and day in terms of our political beliefs. It, I carry with it the history of them knowing me my whole life, right? And it, yep. it, I have to understand that context. Whereas sometimes if we hear something from a perfect stranger, we can hear it in a different way than we hear from the people we hear in our everyday lives. And so it really is context specific. Yeah, and, and I always think of that relationship almost like in the shape of a bell curve. Like there's this sort of peak time when we have influence over people, but if you have two coworkers who work together for a long, long, long time and they eventually uh, learn each other's uh, desires, best practices, worst practices, bad habits, we eventually start to dismiss them, even though we're extremely familiar with them. So it's not familiarity alone that gives us that right. influence. Right, exactly, because you can either, that familiarity can create stronger bonds of yeah. trust, but it can also create antagonistic relationships, whereas, oh, that person always says this, that person always does, you know, it becomes this absolutist, you see them as an antagonistic force in um, 
in an organization, which is why we we tend to, when we work with our clients, try to power map the organization a little bit in that way, mm-hmm. like which departments kind of naturally stand against other departments, even if it's not explicitly said. Like we try to look at some of those uh, cultural and, and power dynamics within an organization. Yeah. Well, I want to talk about this new book. Uh, tell me the story about how it came to exist in the world. Oh, it came to exist <laughs> in the world because, um, you know, I had uh, several people tell me that I should write a book for many years. So that was okay. one way. But it also um, uh, there was work that we were doing as 18 copies of the organization for many years that I thought was just super fascinating, cutting edge work. Um, obviously, I'm biased because I was a part of it and <laughs> helped, helped conceptualize a lot. But I th- also thought it was work that no one else was doing and that there wasn't. It, we hadn't put on paper our point of view about the world and the work that needed to, to happen. And especially coming from my Obama background, coming from some of the digital strategy and digital transformation work I'd done, I felt like I had a pretty unique point of view on that work and could kind of storytell along with telling about the kind of work that we do. Um, and so, you know, it was that's that's basically how the concept of the book came about. The actual writing of the book, um, as you know, was uh, a labor of love over many years. and Emphasis on um, labor. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Um, <laughs> but, you know, that's uh, it's 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 a, w- writing in general, but especially writing a book is just such a great forcing function for what do I actually believe about X yes. topic? Yes. Right. Like it's not it's not even, you know, I can have ideas floating around and as we're in conversation, they can come out kind of directly in, in mm. external processing. But, man, when you're sitting down to write a book, you're really like, oh, I've dedicated an entire chapter to this. I really have to flesh out yes. what I believe about this thing. Yes. Um, and it's a it's a great, stressful um, uh, exercise. I always have this experience when I'm writing. I'm in the throes of writing book three right now, and and my audience has heard me talk about that a little bit, and and I know that you know that, um, and it's it is a, an intensely challenging experience at times, and I constantly hear this voice in my head when I write a statement, prove it. Like, okay, you just mm. made this assertion. How are you going to prove it? And it's funny how I quickly want to go to data and research, but I also need to prove it in real-world case studies and storytelling, mm-hmm. and I need to prove it in terms of um, understanding the background for why things happen. And so uh, you're absolutely right. It is a labor of love. For me, it's a little bit more labor than love. But I heard a, a couple of years ago, uh, a friend of mine who works in the book industry said something really smart. He said, if there are no surprises for the writer, there are no surprises for the reader. Um, and oh. I know that when I sit down to write, I have to write to discover and uncover, right? And and I know a lot of folks who will make their whole outline and then they'll sit down and they'll knock out like 35 minutes a day and then in three, four months, poof, I have a book. And I can't do it that way. I have to sit down and kind of get lost. And where is this taking me? And oh, I need to answer this question. And that's a really surprising thing. So let me go find out more about that. And I end up having some of these surprises. And I think I think it's better in, in the end. And it sounds like that's a part of the experience you've had as well. Yeah, to a certain extent. I mean, I did write a proposal and worked sure. with an agent on the proposal. So I feel like I almost did that more in the proposal stage than I did the actual writing stage yeah. because you have to put the idea so much on paper to be able to go out and sell it to a publisher. But um, I'm actually reading right now Stephen King's On Writing. If you're interested mm-hmm. in the writing process, it is such a fabulous book. Definitely highly recommend it. But in that book, he uh, talks about 
the process being very close to what you were just saying, which is he, he uses the analogy of it being a fossil that he uncovers. Like he's ah. got this kind of loose idea and he's slowly kind of pulling away what it isn't, right? Like he's pulling away, he's uncovering the dirt, he's he's cleaning, he's polishing off like parts of it. Yes. But it's this, it's a thing that exists in the world that he's uncovering. He's not necessarily like creating it. I always, yes. I love that analogy. The two books that I see pointed to the most for writers, and I'm sorry to the boss heroes who are listening if, if Caleb and I are nerding out a little bit right now <laughs> on the whole writing process, but um, is the Stephen King book and then William Zinser's book on writing well. If you've not picked it up, it's in like its 30th edition. And I remember the first time I read this thing, I was like, this is the most useful, brilliant, simple little tool that I've ever encountered for writing. Have you Are you familiar with it at all? I, I've heard of it. Yeah, I haven't read that one, but uh, I've definitely heard of it. I've referenced oh, many good times. Stuff. Good stuff. Um, well, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to uh, keep my promise to our uh, friends who are listening because I told them we were going to talk about change today, which I know is at the center of your expertise. And you've, you know, at the center of this book that you've written is, is navigating mm -hmm. change. And so let's start here uh, when it comes to change. What are some of the core principles that you adhere to and that you use to advise CEOs and guide organizations when it comes to managing and navigating change? I mean, the first one is that things are changing faster and in deeper ways than we even realize. Mm -hmm. And I think that the last few years, it's been much easier to see that come to the surface, right? Like we literally just living through a global pandemic. We've got war in Ukraine. We've got all of these macro elements that are changing, you know, things that really matter to us day to day, you know, this, especially the war and inflation, right? Like you mm -hmm. can draw a straight line between macro things that are happening and impact on our actual wallets. Right. That doesn't always happen. But in the last few years, it's been very easy to convince people about the pace of change. But even before that, if you think about the incremental elements of technological advancement that are changing society as we know it, both from an individual consumer shopping behavior, from how we do work, which has changed in the last mm -hmm. few years, from um, you know the... Uh, connecting the dots of internet connectivity in rural areas and parts of the world that have never been connected. Like there's just so many macro things happening that we have a hard time with our puny human brains wrapping mm -hmm. our head around all of the implications and how they intersect in ways that are going to change how we work and change our lives. And so that that's always the biggest one is like, we cannot wrap our heads around how much our work especially, but our lives um, are going to continue to change and then change again and then change again. But second principle I always tell people is it doesn't have to be scary. And we do have agency over the direction of that change. It's very easy to get, um, you know, I'm going to geek out with you and say, and quote Kierkegaard here, you talked about being lost in the infinite. It's mm -hmm. very easy to get lost in the infinite of all the things that are changing and do nothing about it. Right. And get really get, you know, the paradox of choice means there's so many things we could do that we do nothing. And yes. a lot of the organizations I work with are at that point, maybe they've created a committee over here to kind of investigate something or, you know, you've got one kind of leader with the, the bee in their bonnet saying like, we've got to do this thing, but no one's really listening. You know, it looks like a lot of different things, but oftentimes it's very, a very pair. Uh, causes a lot of organizational paralysis yeah. because it's just so much. Um, but it doesn't have to be scary. There's a lot of opportunity that comes with change. I think there's 
fascinating opportunity when it comes to connecting the world in ways that we've done in the last two years. Like the mm. positive unintended consequences of that, of this pandemic, are going to be have incredible ripple effects for decades. Yep. Um, that's exciting to think about. So there, there are new areas of value in an organization, new product lines, new, new, you know, places that we can innovate. There are new um opportunities for learning for with us as individual contributors in an organization opportunities to stretch our own thinking to do things that we never thought would be parts of our job um you know there's just there's lots of positive um things that come along with change and so i always want to frame it in that way but it takes a lot of mental uh agility and that's where it gets to the third principle i always bring up which is organizations aren't what changes it's people that change because organizations are just a social construct. This is this is something that always baffles people when I talk about. It. I'm like, my company doesn't exist except that we all agree that it exists, right? Like, I've got a <laughs> bunch of things on paper, sure, right? Like, I've got legal documents. I've got yeah. policies and procedures. Um, but the only way it actually creates value every day is we we all agreed to work together towards specific ends and serve my yeah. clients in specific ways. Like, it is a social construct. And so if we want to change a company, we have to change the mindset of the people in that company and help them see their jobs in different ways. Mm. And so when we are scaling up change and how we work with organizations, we have to start with what behaviors need to change at the individual contributor level. How do we get people really excited about a new direction for this Mm. change, get them bought in? seeing their own power and their own agency and making the change, seeing how it's going to change the organization for the better, but also give them new opportunities in their own jobs. And that way we scale up change and make it a conversation between what are leadership priorities and what are individual priorities. I mean, that's really the only way it ever works. If it becomes a big top-down initiative, what is the big big McKinsey study that's always uh, referenced? Like 75% of the time it doesn't work. Right. Because you didn't get the people that were actually going to implement the change involved in where the change was going to go. Right. One of the things I love about what you just said is sort of an acknowledgement that we can't possibly predict the future. And I think for so many leaders, especially in senior leadership roles, especially for folks who sit in high-level administrative or C-suite roles, they are for years they've been told, you gotta have some idea of what the future is gonna be like so that you can lead and so you can guide your teams, your organization, your products and services appropriately. But it feels like you just said, it's not possible to really know all the various iterations or, or, or potential paths that we could go forward in. So let yourself off the hook with that. And while you, and maybe I'm, I'm oversimplifying this, so correct me if I'm wrong, but what I think I heard is you can't possibly know what's going to happen, but you still have to know where you're going. Yeah, I mean, uh, the whole first chapter of my book, I'll just, spoiler alert, is about how bad we are at planning, like how yeah. bad we are at predicting the future. Even smart people get the future wrong all the time. And mm-hmm. so we have to see the future as the business of what we're in now and be actually agile and 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 overlapping like different plans and different scenarios and think through strategic planning a lot differently than this linear process that we had gone through before. It's the whole point of the the book, right? It's called No Point B because there is no linear process to get from where we are to where we're going. It's going to inevitably change. And so, yeah, it doesn't mean we don't plan. It just means we do it in shorter cycles. We have agility both on paper and in our thinking. 
and we, you know, listen and get a lot of data a lot more quickly. I think the the one thing that when I work with leaders, and I, this is me coming from a digital background, having worked with these massive data sets, is that sometimes people have this perception that data gives us certainty, mm. right? When we're looking at planning, it's like, oh, we start to use that as an excuse not to move because we don't have the data. Mm. Um, it also sometimes gives us confirmation bias about a direction we want right. to move in, depending on how the data is interpreted. But data doesn't really give us uh, wisdom. It gives us signal. Sometimes it gives us insight. But ultimately, we have to be able to move before we have a lot of the data points that we actually want to confirm that that's the right direction. Absolutely. Well, we are going to pause because I have like at least three or so other things that I want to ask you about that tie into what <laughs> you just said. But we're going to pause to keep the other promise that we make to our listeners every week to do this. We have a little something that we do around here, Caleb, called the camaraderie question of the week. We know that bosses build camaraderie on teams by helping people find things in common with each other that go beyond the tasks and duties of their roles. And when people get to build more sophisticated relationships with each other, that actually powers performance. And so every week on our show, we give leaders a question they can ask in huddles or during meetings or on Zooms or even one-on-one -on -one just to help people make those connections and develop more camaraderie. And it comes with this catchy little theme music. And so our camaraderie question of the week is this. Caleb, what is a hobby or activity you enjoy that only a few people around you know about? Okay, first of all, that music was delightful. Thank you. And <laughs> it was related to what my answer is going to be, which is that I play music. Play okay. guitar, um, like to sing. Used to actually minored in music in college, believe it or not. Ah. So I still, I mean, obviously I'm very busy now, both with my business, but also with having a family. So I don't get to do it as often as I would like, but you know, on the weekends I'll still play the, you know, pick up the guitar, play for the kids, you know, do yeah. it as a way to honestly do it as a way to separate myself from screens for a little bit. Right? Yes. Yes. Did you know that we have that in common? Cause my bachelor's degree is in voice. And I did my not know that. answer to this question was going to be, I play the guitar and every once in a while, for years I would do like the occasional open mic night and not be very good. Like my voice and my, <laughs> my music background was more musical theater. And if you've ever seen a musical theater guy try to go do like coffee house open mic night, it's not always the smoothest transition <laughs> to make, right? Um, but we have that in common. That's so interesting. So were you doing music a lot in middle school, high school and decided you wanted to maybe pursue it as a career? Is that how it became a minor? Actually, this is funny. I did more theater in high school than I did uh, okay. music. I didn't do music really. I did music personally, just like, you know, in my bedroom in high school and stuff. But I didn't really think, oh, I should learn some musical theory and, you know, yeah. make myself smarter about this until college. Okay. All right. And so when you were minoring in music, what were you majoring in? A history. Okay. All right. And so did you marry those two together in any way? Were you doing any historic <laughs> musicals, anything like that? Not really. No. I mean, I, I, for a while, I thought I was going to be an attorney and would go to law school after, after college, which is part of okay. why I majored in history. But no, and then I decided not to do that. I just ended up graduating with a major in history and a, a minor in music. And I can okay. say my parents were thrilled and they were like, what are you going to go do with that? I was like, I don't know. <laughs> 
Well, I think it's worked I, out okay. It's worked out, I was going to say. And and if nothing else, you can reach over for that guitar every once in a while. And I don't know if it's like this for you, but for me, it's almost like at-home therapy. When you run your own mm-hmm. business, it, it's hard to stop thinking about the work. And that's one exactly. of the things that when I get to, to do music, it helps me completely unplug from all the other noise in my head. Same. I mean, I to me, I'm very futuristic in terms of my orientation. It actually yeah. came up when I did a Strengths Finder from Gallup a few years ago. Yeah. Futuristic is one of my one of my strengths. What it means is that my head is rarely in the present, and I have to yeah. actually like contentment ends up being a practice for me. Otherwise, it's just you know future, future, future. Um, I like to make the joke that, and this is something that's actually happened. My wife and I will sit at the dinner table, and she'll be like what do you want for dinner? And I'll be like, I don't know. Where do you want to retire? Like that's, that's, <laughs> those are our orientations. Yes. Um, so like playing guitar or really doing anything with my hands, like doing the mm. dishes, whatever yes. really helps me stay in the moment and, and stay out of my head a little bit. Oh man, that is so true for me too. I'm feeling very, very triggered by everything you just said. <laughs> <laughs> but we, we talk at home about how I have to work hard to just be to just mm-hmm. be, you know what I mean? And to not think about um, what's the next thing I can knock off the list, you know? And I think and, a lot of entrepreneurs are like that. I guess so. I guess so. Well, hey, man, thank you for sharing. That is the camaraderie question of the week. All right, Caleb, I've got you for a few more minutes. And so I, there are two or three things that I want to ask you about before we get you out of here. Um, one of them is uh, a phrase that you use in the book. Uh, you talk about building adaptive capability. That sounds like a really important skill or trait for leaders to embrace in the world today. Mm-hmm. What does that mean and how do we get better at it? I like to use the analogy of the organization being like a muscle, right? Like, uh, I mean, a series of muscles, right? But the, the, the reason I like to use that is because it when we don't use our muscles, when we don't exercise, when we don't build endurance, and then a crisis happens, we end up having to run a mile to do, mm. you know, like, your your kid's sick and you got to run a mile to the hospital to get medicine. I don't know. That was a terrible analogy, but you get what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> um we don't have the endurance to be able to handle it. Like we're asking our body to do something we've never trained it for. I think that change is a lot like that for the organization. Building adaptive capability means that we are stretching ourselves, building endurance, building strength to be able to tackle hard challenges before those hard challenges actually happen. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, again, they happen all the time. We might not know they're happening all the time, but before the big crisis creation, you know, happens where we're really getting disrupted, we've got a leadership turnover, you know, some of these huge things that really trickle down in the organization. um, We need people to have both the mental agility, but also things on paper to know what to do in different scenarios. And so creating that adaptive capability is about seeing around corners to more than just what's happening day to day in our organization, preparing everyone to be able to change quickly. Well, and that tees me up perfectly to the other thing that I wanted to ask you about that that I encountered in the materials for the book, which is you talk about how important it is that we're never resting on our assumptions about how to best navigate change, navigate the world, navigate what's happening. How do we make sure that we don't do that? Uh, what does that look like? It looks like periodically creating the opportunity to self-evaluate. And, and you know, it's a little bit subjective depending on what kind of, you know, department we're in, what kind of problem we want to self-evaluate. 
but I'll get I'll give you a specific example of a client that I was working with recently who wanted to look at their product development process and they wanted to critique specifically the design process used in that product development process. And the reason they wanted to critique it is that in the last few years, there's been a lot of critique of the design process when it comes to um, inclusivity in marginalized communities, basically saying like, look, the design process, if you know anything about this, it, you know, it goes from ideate, empathize, you know, the, it, those are big parts of the design process. They basically said, how can a, you know, white man like me ever truly empathize with people mm -hmm. that have disabilities or people that are in marginalized communities? We've, we've created this expectation that we can do something we actually can't do without the direct involvement of those communities. Mm -hmm. And so that critique from a pretty ethical, you know, standpoint, um, has now started to go around in design circles. A lot of the design process itself hasn't changed yet, but this organization we were working with said, we wanted to take that critique mm. seriously. And we want to look at the design process and look how we're developing products and look at the output of how we're developing those products and say, is it having actual positive benefits to marginalized communities or is it having harm to marginalized communities? Mm. We don't always have to take big moments in time, like build, bringing in a consulting firm like ours to reevaluate the tools we're using. Oftentimes, it just takes some intentionality about putting things on the calendar and giving things an expiration date and say, at this point, we are going to consider whether or not this, these assumptions we are making, these tools we are using, actually are still good Mm. Or we can continue to use them, or should we actually reevaluate them, critique them, adjust them? This is a big part of complexity theory. If you know anything about complexity theory, it means like complexity theory basically says we are systems, you and I, that work in systems, groups, mm -hmm. organizations that interact with other systems, the rest of society, our political environment, et cetera, et cetera. In that kind of complex environment, we can never actually know fully the unintended consequences of our right. decisions. And we have to be able to self-critique in a recursive, repetitive way what our assumptions are. I think that organizations can do that. It just takes some intentionality. It takes literally, my, I used to have a mentor that said, if it's not on the calendar, it's just a good idea. Yeah, Put it on the calendar. Like it's, it's not hard. It's just, it takes some intentionality. I th and I think that's so translatable to a lot of the frontline and mid-level leaders that listen to this show. And because that intentionality can become a practice in my day-to-day -day life as the supervisor of a team of nine, when as things continue piling up on my plate, I step back and say, does it make sense for me to continue doing these other things that I've always done? Does it make sense for me to continue putting these fires out in the same way? Are there uh, are there practices that I have always thought of as um, not non-negotiables that actually are, mm -hmm. right? And, and, and then also going back to the assumption point that you talked about is what don't I know? What perspective don't I have? What, what perspective am I incapable of having because of the chair that I sit in or the nature of my role or the, the nature of who I am in this world? So that intentionality can absolutely be translated not just from a kind of a, a corporate vision uh, and corporate practice, but into the way that we individually lead. Yeah, I mean, going back to what I was saying I, uh, earlier about the, you know, organizations being made of people and the only way organizations change is if the people change. I think that it can't happen unless the people who are leading those teams of nine right. or whatever in an organization commit to doing that. 
because the at the corporate level, at the leadership level, they often don't have the visibility to see whether things, how things are working in the day-to-day process of the actual application of the tools. Right. So they just assume everything's fine. Yeah. And actually, there could be things that are that are very broken about the process. Or somebody will tell me if I should should think differently about this, or if I right. should stop yes. using this. Right, right. Yeah. Well, let let's kind of wrap up on this. You know, so many of our listeners. Uh, who are in those frontline and mid-level roles, they endure change that is brought about by people and by forces beyond their control. Uh, They endure change more so than they get to drive it. What (laughs) advice do you have for leaders on the front lines who often find themselves at the mercy of change with limited power to influence it? That's such a good question. And one that we've, we've addressed many times because we get, we get asked this, we get asked to come in and talk to, you know, groups, uh, that are experiencing a lot of, especially external change. They don't have a lot of control over and are experiencing a lot of, a lot of stress, you know, like we've all experienced a lot of stress the last couple of years, but a little bit, especially folks that don't, when you don't feel like you have control over your destiny, it it adds a level of, um, taxation on our mental capacity. Um, so uh, there's two things I would say that one is going back to framing changes and opportunity. There are things that happen in the organization where decisions are made and you don't have full visibility into why those decisions are made. And hopefully there's a level of trust that's been developed between management and between the, the folks on the front line. Um, if not, I would actually say that you have more agency to figure it out and to ask questions than we often realize. Mm-hmm. You know, like I don't think I don't think anyone in leadership necessarily wants to create a lack of transparency or wants there to be a disconnect between the vision of where the organization is going and what's happening on the front line. Oftentimes, those just happen out of um, a lack of communication. Like they're not. They would love more transparency, love people to get engaged in the larger vision, love people to be plugged in. But what happens is people are just so busy doing their day-to-day jobs that they aren't really paying that close attention. So I think you have a lot of agency to create clarity for yourself. I think where you don't have clarity or you disagree, I actually think you have a lot of agency to speak up and to organize other people with a different point of view and bring that point of view to people that you report to. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you want to do it diplomatically. You want to do it in a way that, you know, it's not going to create a lot of internal dissonance. If you do, maybe that's not the right person. Different, <laughs> right. different big questions if they really can't take any critique of the direction, right? Like, otherwise, I think if you are, if the organization is healthy and functioning like it should be, they should want feedback from people on the front line. Yes. And they should want, want engagement from people on the front line. And so I think oftentimes, um, you know, individual contributors have more agency than they realize. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so the book is called No Point B, Rules for Leading Change in the New Hyperconnected, Radically Conscious Economy. It's coming out in a few weeks. How do they find it, Caleb? Right now, you can go to calebgardner.com slash pre-order, and that will give you a few options for where to pre-order the book. Um, Like Joe said, it comes out August 9th. I'll be doing some, um, you know, different events between now and then uh, to promote the book. And after it comes out, as you know, like it's a whole whole song and dance I'll be doing between now and <laughs> August 9th. That should be pretty fun. That's exciting. And if people want to follow you, learn more about 18 Coffees or get in touch with you, uh, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, uh, you can follow me all over the internet at calebgardner.com, including um, on all the socials, which my handle is usually just calebgardner. 18coffees.com for our consulting firm. We'd love to hear from you. Well, thank you so much for being here today. You gave us a lot to think about. I'm really grateful.
Thank you, Joe. Always great to talk to you. All right, friends, that's our show. Remember to please share and subscribe. And also remember this. You got to take care of yourselves out there, Boss Heroes, which I know that you sometimes forget to do. Amid a relentless flow of work and demands and change and fires to put out every day, remember that you don't serve others well unless you're taking care of yourself. And that's not a thing you have to find time for when you can. That's a thing you must intentionally plan for first. After all, we fill up the gas tank before we need the gas in order to get where we need to go, not the other way around. For now, thanks for listening, and thanks for all that you do to care for so many. We'll see you next week. This show is sponsored by Joe Mullen Associates. Remember, commitment comes from better bosses. Visit JoeMall.com today.